the idea that you were hearing a sermon about the gospel in a pig barn is uh, <laughs> yeah. is was, yeah. would have would have been a real issue in the first century, <laughs> right? <laughs> they would have had a council had to meet about this. There would be a whole series of letters written about this. Like, how do we work yeah. through this? <laughs> they caused no small uprising. Right, we would have split the church. Welcome to this next episode of Meaningful Miscellanea with your hosts, Jacob Tilton and Richie Sessions. Richie, we've got a, a very special guest today, don't we? Yes, we do. We have a scholar, a, a writer, a, a, a pastor. What can we say about this man? A, a comedian. A, a comedian, a musician. A musician. Exactly. I mean, when I think of of this man, uh, there's so many, so many words that, that come to mind, uh, most of a which I can say. Uh, that's right. Uh, we've got uh, Darwin Jordan uh, visiting with us today. Darwin, thanks for, thanks for coming on. It's an honor to be here with you two guys, whom I love so much. <clears throat> well, yeah, we could, we've got a, gosh, this, this could be it. This could be our longest episode. No doubt. Uh, Ever for sure, uh, Darwin. Yeah, <laughs> no, no, no. We could. This is going to be so much wonderful, Miss As Doctor Jesley, my preaching professor, used to say, "We're going to go to, from Dan to Beersheba, <laughs> <laughs> from the north of Israel to the south." <laughs> I have to tell you a story, but I can't tell it on air. Richie, remind me when we get okay. on. Um, I'll double click. We'll, we'll make that available to our uh, paid uh, subscribers. Yes. <laughs> uh, Darwin, so uh, for, gosh, for those who don't know, um, tell us a little bit about yourself. And I'll just start by saying that uh, that. You and I uh, have known each other for, I don't know, about 16 or 17 years now, but um, we worked together for a very long time in Fort Worth, and so uh, you were my pastor for a long time, and um, yeah, I can say more about that later, but so uh, that's kind of where, where we have known each other, but start, let's start us off just by where you, where you grew up and where you're from. Give us a little taste of that. Grew up in Alabama, Northeast Alabama, Gadsden, Alabama. Um, and I was raised an Alabama fan for good or bad. Um, uh, my dad went to Alabama and that kind of defined our life as a, in the fall, um, driving to Alabama games. And my dad was a doctor. We had some pretty nice spreads at places and, that was one of the reasons I always thought I wanted to be a doctor so I could go to Alabama games and have good spreads as a kid. <laughs> you're not, you're talking about the, uh, the gambling spread. Is that what you're talking about? Uh, the... <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Um, but, uh, I, I was, um, it's interesting. My background in terms of, uh, my grandfather who was, um, 
an avid biologist and had a sad ending to his life. He died of tuberculosis when he was 14. But um, he had such an interest in biology. Apparently, he read Charles Darwin, and he's like living in on Sand Mountain, you know, near Boaz, Alabama, uh, but read Charles Darwin, named my father Charles Darwin Jordan. Mm-hmm. And then my father grew up that same interest and was the first person to come off the mountain to go to university, and he became a doctor. And then I grew up with that same uh, desire. I can remember going through the entire encyclopedia, and I listed every animal, its height, weight, you know, color, everything, learning all the animals in his side for fun. That was for fun. (laughs) And my dad tells a, he would tell this story. I I didn't know about it at the time, but I was being an avid biologist. I saw one day that my, our big Tomcat had killed a rat. Okay. Was eating it. I realized it was a fe- it was a female rat. I harvested the babies. I put them in alcohol. Daddy was home uh, on a Saturday eating lunch, and he tells me later, some year later or whatever, that that was the only time he's ever gotten sick in his life. Because <laughs> I came in excitedly to show him the baby rats in the alcohol. Wow. You harvested, how many baby rats were there? I think five or six, yeah, that I harvested anyway. She might have, my cat might have eaten a couple of them. I don't know. I'm sure she got a couple. Uh, But anyway, that's a gross story. But um, I uh, loved math and science. And I was always going to be a doctor until uh, I decided that, I needed to go into the ministry and that came about because of a lot of people's feedback and that kind of thing. It was a long time coming, but eventually I went into the ministry, but I, I always kid that my people have had to bear, uh, with me in a lot of, uh, you know, illustrations that are based in science and stuff, but some kids like it, but, uh, you know, one day I was coming in from, uh, Outside, I think it was on a Sunday morning, and I was telling Kay about this drop of water and how the sun was shining through it and all this. And she said, you know most people aren't interested in that, don't you? (laughs) (laughs) It's like, yeah, I know, I know. Most people don't like to explore stuff like I do in that regard. You're a taxonomist. Yes, yes, very much so. Um, at the time, but that also fueled, uh, a huge interest I had, uh, I guess in the seventies started reading science and I expected to read about evolution and find it daunting, you know, scientifically, but I started with Michael Denton's book, um, evolution of theory and crisis. He was a microbiologist in Australia and, uh, had written a book, 400 plus pages, strictly scientific. Obviously, he wasn't pushing Christianity, um, but it was strictly science against evolution. And uh, so I would love to go back and talk to my grandfather, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> who named my dad Charles Darwin. I got the Darwin part. I didn't get the Charles part. But 
I've always wanted you got the taxonomy to... part as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I I would always uh, I've always wished I could talk to my grandfather about Charles Darwin. But... <clears throat> God, that is fat. That is. I think that is so fascinating that you were like that interested that you wanted to know the details that you were keeping record of different animals. <laughs> I just got back from my wife and I, we were, I was doing a wedding wedding in Charlottesville and we went to the little museum, went to Monticello where Thomas Jefferson, you know, his whole oh, place yeah. is over there. And we went to part of the museum and he would, and this is like when he was, you know, in later years or whenever, I don't know how old he was. He was, he was an adult, but he would, take like copious detailed notes comparing the size and weight of American animals compared to European animals. It'd be like the American bear weighs this so many kilograms and the uh, European bear, the European beaver weighs so-and-so, but the American beaver weighs, he would do that like, like to the nth degree. I mean, just like it was really, really fascinating about, there's something in us that really wants to understand, to have our, maybe there's a sense of like, really, that's what we talk a lot about on our, on this podcast. It's just the sense of wonder and to kind of try to get our hands around it or, or observe it and appreciate it. Yeah. That's, uh, you know, and knowing Darwin, that's one of my favorite things about you, Darwin. And many people would say this, but just your ability to be captivated and caught up in wonder about things um, has always been uh, just an amazing thing because you know that that's something that usually, for most people, including myself, kind of it kind of kind of leaves uh, at 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 a way. I was reading a book recently where it talked about shame, uh, and and the 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 quote said that shame uh, we are often shamed out of our enthusiasm, and <laughs> that's oh. uh, something for you, Darwin. That. Uh, in many ways, it's not happened. I'll tell a quick story about that. Um, shortly after I moved to Fort Worth, uh, the one of my favorite things was uh, Darwin and I went to the art museum to see the traveling exhibit of the Impressionist paintings that I believe were from the Chicago Art Museum. Is that right, Darwin? Yeah. yeah. So they lived there, but they were in Fort Worth uh, for a, a for an uh, exhibition. And I actually, I think this may have been my first time to ever go to an art museum. So I, to even like intentionally go, not on a field trip in school. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so we were, we were, we got there and I'm like, I'm walking around with Darwin and um, I, I very quickly learned that, oh, this is going to be a little bit longer of a trip than I thought it was going to be. Because uh, I have to go with Darwin. <laughs> no, but I wouldn't have known. I like you, in a sense, like walked beside me and uh, showed me how I should look at these paintings and take time to do so. So we probably spent like two or three hours walking through this one exhibit, and and <laughs> it was amazing. No. I mean, of course, it was amazing, but it and but it was such a. Uh, it, it was just a, a good example of Darwin, the way that you are, um, you're not, you're not pressed on, uh, for time to get, to get past beauty. Uh, you, you, uh, do a great job of lingering and, and taking in, uh, beautiful things. So that was such a good time. Question. I got a question. That's great. Um, 
So growing up Northeast Alabama, was there ever any, you know, I'm just imagining a kid that was uh, seeing a slain rat and then harvesting its young. <laughs> and I'm thinking he needed a psychologist. Right? No, no, I'm just thinking that's an interesting child. At, was there ever any conflict with other, what was it like growing up that way in that, you know, I'm just imagining, we, that's what, something we talk a lot about the show is just being sensitive or, or, you know, not really fitting sort of your typical Southern culture or the, maybe the stereotype. Oh, was yeah, it like, yeah. You know, you, you, you were interested in different types of things. You were observed. Was, was there ever any conflict there uh, in Northeast? Alabama? Well, um, <clears throat> I think there wasn't as much because I played sports and uh, so, and, and I love sports watching. And so, that and then um and then I was just a regular kid. I, I've I've often thought, see, I didn't read much of anything except you know the science of the encyclopedia. I had a friend, Ronnie, who got a stack of books from the library every every week. Um, but I just wasn't a reader and I, I bemoaned that. I, I I would love to I, I don't know if y'all but I have thought, yeah, I would take I would take starting at 14 years old. I'd take starting at six years old. If I just knew a little more mm-hmm. because I didn't read that. So I wasn't the kind of bookish kid that was inside while everybody was outside playing. I played with the neighborhood kids. Uh, we went, had a, um, a bit of an elder friend and we usually were with him when we were exploring the woods down below our house and the Creek and, um, it, it, all that was just amazing fun. Um, so the the one thing that I felt weird about, though, was when uh, I got glasses in the fourth grade and no one had glasses at that time. And I can remember remember uh, coming home from the doctor and I couldn't believe that I could see leaves. I could see bricks. You know, it was just <laughs> amazing. But. I was taken back when I began reading Boy's Life, and there was one kid in this. It was the Cave Kids. I don't know if you've ever read Boy's Life, but they had a, a cartoon episode every issue with the Cave Kids, and there was only one Cave Kid that wore glasses, and his name was Darwin. <laughs> <laughs> of course, <laughs> just. I did fight that a little bit, you know, thinking that I'm the weird. And, of course, you got called all the names and stuff. Um, now, another aspect of uh, being in <clears throat> Northeast, well, I don't know. if It was as aspect of being in East Gadsden and being in a public school. <clears throat> excuse me. The public school was right across from the projects. And 7th through ninth grade, uh, there was this terror factor of the hoods that were from that area and they populated heavily the junior high. And so you're walking down the hall and a big kid will just haul off and hit you. And if you do anything about it, he'll kill you the next day, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, And I'll never forget my friend, Richard Fordham was, a little bit smaller guy, but wiry and tough. 
was sitting, uh, well, milk was an issue because I remember walking out of uh, the, the lunch line and I bumped into one of the big ninth graders and I was a late, late bloomer even, and I was up a grade. I shouldn't have been in that grade, but so I was really, really small. And I literally came to his waist and I bumped him and he had two milks in his hand and he just looked at me and said, if you'd have knocked this milk out of my hand, I would have, and I can't tell you what he said. But um, so anyway, another milk story is my friend Richard has two chocolate milks <laughs> and Larry Gamble, who's the worst hood of all in the uh, school, oh, he Larry. comes by and he punches Richard in the back a little bit, and he says, I want one of your chocolate milks for my white milk. Richard says, to my, my like, shock and dismay, I'm not going to give you my chocolate milk. Mm. And Gamble says, I'm telling you, I will take you out right now. And about that time, Wayne Minton, who was not a hood, but he was a big dude. He had grown up as big as he'll ever get in the ninth grade, right? Yeah. And he later married my uh, cousin Kathy, and we're still friends to this day. And he loved—I I love telling the story and uh, to him about it. But he comes by and he shoves Gamble, and he says, "Let's take it outside." So they go outside, have a fight. He beats him up, and uh, I remember Rufus Holland, this big round teacher, comes back in, and his hands just wave. He says, "Oh, Gamble got." Taken down today, you know. Just, <laughs> I mean, that's the teacher, you know. He just, they just loved it. And Gamble, uh, a couple of months later, got was arrested because he stabbed someone at the skating rink. Oh, so he now, actually was a dangerous guy. Yeah, he was a really dangerous guy. But anyway, that was that was junior. Oh my gosh! Like, and, and it's to be over chocolate milk. Like, yeah, hey, right. you, you give me that chocolate milk or I'll cut you like a fish. <laughs> I saw Richard tightening down on his fork and I knew he was going to like fight it out with him. I thought, golly. Uh, anyway. Oh, I'm liking the shape we're, get, we're making uh, here with the uh, with Northeast Alabama, East Gadsden. Uh, yeah. And that's the same uh, skating rink that later when I had my rock band, one of our regular gigs was playing from 10 to 12 on Saturday nights after the uh, skating rink shut, you know, for uh, skating oh, yeah. and then that cleared for dancing. And then we tried our new stuff. Oh, y'all do originals. No new stuff we had learned. <laughs> so what was, so what was your, like, what's, what kind of stuff were y'all covering? Um, we, we were a little bit, uh, strange in that we we liked young rascals uh we we liked and we liked some of their off stuff that wasn't on the radio like come on up was it still think it's one of the great rock songs but it hardly ever played um and we did we later got a, a lead singer I, I i shared singing with him then but uh and when we did that, we did Three Dog Night because we, we love to sing vibrata, you know. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, yeah. So we could do Three Dog Night and uh, Vanilla Fudge. Uh, we loved, we did Inagata De Vita, 17-minute version. 
Oh and gosh. when we played at the Odyssey, which is a psychedelic place in Panama City, we played for a week. Bob, our, our, our bass player, was forbidden to come. And so we didn't know this whole story. He was forbidden to come. And when we stopped by his house to pick him up that morning to go down to Panama City, he was sitting on the porch on his bass amp because <laughs> he just had to sneak out the house. Wow. Until he took off. I mean, there was really nothing they could do once we left. But anyway, um, we played, we had to play five hour sets. And there were nights we played in the God of Vita three times. You know, oh. just to make the sense. Wow. <laughs> in the God of Vita. <laughs> what would you play? Did you, would you play the keys? I was keys, yeah. Were yeah. people dancing to this? Well, you know, in a psychedelic place, <laughs> who knows what's happening. <laughs> what year was that? everywhere and you know it's just I mean, it's truly what you think of as psychedelic and it was creating it it's the odyssey man it's the odyssey oh and we had a new funny we had this new drummer bill tumla really cool guy um and he, we said do you know uh purple haze he said yeah i know purple haze so we we just played it for the first time together. So this is Bill on drums. So we're going, mm, Purple Haze, all in my brain. Stop. Oh, start singing. You don't seem the same. Stop. Oh, oh, sing. Lately, man. And then he figures, I just must play every time. Don't know why. And we all stop. And he plays right through. <laughs> oh, no. This is one That's of those right. great moments where... New drummer, new drummer. Next. <laughs> so, what year? What year would it this like? What was what year would this been? Sixty-eight, uh, probably. Something oh like man! That. Oh, that's that's good. Some, that was like yeah. the golden age. Yeah, Beatles. Look at what they were doing then, and I just. I'm always, I've always been astounded at where the Beatles started in 63 and where they ended in 70. Unbelievable. In fact, that whole, that whole era, because we, Kane, I've said this many times, uh, we had this continuity with our kids and our grandkids. In fact, I took Lila, my granddaughter, my oldest granddaughter, to the dentist yesterday in Fort Worth because the girls are all gone. The girls are my daughter, my wife, and the youngest daughter. They're going to Mississippi. Anyway, I took her, and she was kidding about playing her mother's playlist, and uh, she said, there's some rocking things on there. I said, you probably don't like my rock, my playlist because there's two rocking for you, you know. So, but imagine what my parents or anybody would have heard 50 years before 1960, right. 65, mm-hmm. 20, I mean, 1915 music or 1925 or 35 music. But now, 50 years ago, look at it. It's just, it's astounding to me. It, it really is. Because, like, you would have uh, been listening to, like, hello, my darling, hello, my honey, <laughs> hello, my ratchet, gal. You know, <laughs> This would have all been. It would have been like these vaudeville, like or or I guess like really. I mean, it Elvis really changed 
Every, like Elvis was huge. The whole thing that was happening in the fifties in Memphis was just a watershed moment. And then the Beatles and yeah, which, which does give us continuity with the fact that your grandkid, like my, my kids like this, like, like the Beatles and my dad loved the Beatles. So I, yeah, I can't imagine that ever spanning another generation. That's so true. It is crazy. I think the only thing you could go back is to say how long ago that the blues, you know, were they formed in the, what late right. 19th, early 20th. So that's the one line, but it, it just broke out. I mean, that really is kind of the story. How did blues were going along so for so long with some jazz and all that kind of stuff. And then suddenly, uh, you have the blues breaking out in with Jimi Hendrix, you know, and, right. and a whole new form that just blossomed and grew. And well, just it was, and it was, you know, England introduced the blues to a lot of Americans, like because they were listening yeah. to Muddy Waters and Howling Wolf uh, and Robert Johnson, and then and then you know we come back in the yard, people are listening to the Yardbirds, and they're introducing Mississippi Delta music to Americans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, they loved. They loved hearing. I mean, what they got from them, and just in this uh, get back documentary, you see them playing just for fun, playing that stuff that they that influenced them all the way back uh, in the late fifties and early sixties. So. Yeah, what was your take on the on the documentary, the get back? Um. Well, at first, I was. I was really surprised that they weren't more prepared, you know, to do something like this. And (laughs) and then it was, it was amazing after the wealth of songs that they put out, that they're sitting there fumbling through old stuff, trying to find something to do. You know, I mean, that's, that was just an amazing moment. Um, But then and then I thought the whole thing was a little bit slow until you start seeing them uh, pull together the songs that are going to, some on Abbey Road, some on Let It Be. But I love this moment with Paul. He's he's putting together uh, a long and winding road, right? And you can hear it in the background, but Ringo's talking with one guy about the Beatles and where we're headed. And then uh, another guy's talking with uh, John uh, about the, where the concert might be. And in the background you hear him. uh, And I think George is over there helping him a little bit with it. And you're like, wait guys, this song, you got to listen. And then later in the video, he's, he's working again on it. And the the guy, one of the producer guys, leans over the piano, stops him while he's playing a long and winding road and says, well, where do you think the concert should be? Just like he has no idea. This is history, man. Seriously. (laughs) Just amazing that you're listening to these songs that in their infant form. and, And even as other guys are hearing it for the first time, they don't know what it is. You know, they're not responding it's not in its full form and and then a song of course has its own life and becomes something big only maybe sometimes years down the road but certainly 
you know, in the first year or two, you, you kind of realize what the song is and what it's going to be, what the part it's going to play from now on. Um, but I was, I was surprised too, that there was so, it was so disorganized and the, you know, the, uh, you know, what is it? Michael Lindsay or whatever the guy's name is. That was sort of like, he was walking around like a chicken with his head cut off. Just like, <laughs> Oh yeah. Well, yeah. It felt like it was sort of like seventh graders were like putting this thing together. You know, it just, it, it was yeah. chaos. Well, I know for, for these poor guys, I, I wouldn't want to be Ringo sitting there. Cause he, he's like, just wait till they start something. And then you play along. You know? I don't but, think he minded though. <laughs> I think, I think he, you're right. I think, I think you're right. he had enough uh, going on inside his, uh, <laughs> much like the Odyssey. He had enough going on. Yeah. Right. That, uh, he yes. didn't mind. Right. He could take or leave people. It didn't matter. <laughs> I was always but, just struck by uh, like it, Anytime you've played music or any kind of project endeavor that people may do with a group of people, how the personalities are different and how you just have to work with, you have to work beyond that and, and, and work with people that are not, don't work the same pace or uh, level yeah. of uh, intensity mm-hmm. that you do. Cause I mean, you could just see Paul being like kind of a super driven creative guy but also super driven and yeah and yeah i was struck by just kind of how uh funny and laid back john lennon was like, <laughs> i know he did not seem dr- driven at all but he was okay with like he wanted to make good things uh yeah. <laughs> i mean it just the the difference in all of those personalities seeing that work how it worked for six hours was just it was i kept thinking i can't believe I cannot believe we have this to see. I know. And <laughs> yeah. I tell you what was what was heart was heartwarming for me was to see Paul and John joke around and have such a, a relationship because my assumption has always been okay, they were already mad at you know they were mad at each other already and they hate each by this time they hate each other's guts and you know and they were it was Linda McCartney for all these years that were creating this amazing music and they were like brothers right and so to see them like be Lennon McCartney there and to see them get along. I mean, I know there's all kind of subtext and things probably going on behind the scenes too, but that was, that was, that was, I enjoyed seeing them be John and Paul Mm -hmm. a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. They would uh, laugh and start putting stuff together and singing together. And that, that was really cool. I think it was on two of us where Paul was really frustrated and, and I love when I can't do George's accent. I love to hear him talk. But um, when he said, I'll play anything you want. I'll not play at all. Whatever. <laughs> you know, just want to please you. You know, that kind of just whatever, Paul, just tell me. And then Paul saying, well, I, I don't want to be the leader. I've never but I felt like I've been the leader now, you know, and all that stuff going on. Mm-hmm. But and then yeah, what, how old never, are they? Late 20s? You know, they're probably yeah, 26, yeah. 27. Crazy. Yeah, well, John born in 40, uh, so there you go, 29, 28, 29. Wow. Yeah, that George scene when he's almost like, it, it It almost felt like, you know when you get your feelings hurt and you're about to be in a fight with your friends, but you're like, you don't know if you're about to cry or yell at the same time, like that that feeling like, oh, 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 I'll just play whatever, I, I, I'll, uh, I'll, I just won't play, or you play, play I, I, like you want to <laughs> 
you know, like you want to get in a fight or, or you want to cry, but you're sort of in that sort of in-between state. That's what yeah. it felt like with George. I'll just do whatever. I'll play whatever you want me to play, or I'll just won't play at all. I just won't play at all. Like, I it was just, I, said, I read about the um, Abbey Road. I had to get the chronology straight that this was before Abbey Road and Let It Be, and they have songs on both of them. But um, they, Paul requested uh, when they were going to, they wanted to go back and do Abbey Road, but he requested that they return to the discipline of former albums, uh, which apparently they did. And to put it all together, because I think he was so frustrated, you know, with these sessions. But um, unbelievable, man! It's and just spinning amazing. it, just spinning it out, you know, that's <laughs> just incredible. That he, you think, where did that come from? And then where did that come from? And another one, where did that come from? Right. It's just remarkable. You know? So much smoking. <laughs> so much there's just so much smoking what's going on and so much toast toast <laughs> toast and jam So Darwin, I understand that you have been working on a book for for quite some time. Tell us tell us a little bit about that. Where what you're what you're working on there, and where where it kind of came from. Yeah, uh, this really uh, <clears throat> flowed out of my premarital counseling. Um, I in in developing premarital counseling materials, I had a little paper embedded in the study that had to do with the meaning of sexual expression. And it was, I guess, because you just all the time in premarital counseling and any other counseling, you just see how fractured everybody's understanding of sex is. Um, and then I, I later developed what was called the honeymoon paper. And we found out later that it was being, you know, sent around a lot of people because <laughs> it, it, it went into some detail of how to, how to learn from each other and grow together in your sexual expression and stuff like that. But anyway, um, it's been interesting reading that book, the rescue of sex, Richie, I don't know if you've seen that, but, um, this lady wrote the book, uh, with her daughter and then this uh, doctor who, uh, and, and they did a survey of like 20,000 women and the findings were pretty shocking to me. Uh, but it was gratifying in reading these findings about what women were suffering in their marriages to think that for 25 or 30 years I had been, writing specifically against that, you know, for a, a man's understanding of a woman and all that kind of stuff, uh, physically particularly. <clears throat> but I think one of the most important aspects of all this is uh, learning the meaning of the act itself. So uh, as I talk about in the book, um, 
the emphasis in Ephesians 5 is so much about the sexual act, but we don't really translate it that way or, or it, it gets screened out in our thinking. Um, so what in effect is happening in the sex act, and, and of course this is all assuming that you, uh, with a husband and wife, let's just assume they have not had sex before. Uh, but even, even in a case of a prostitute, Paul talks about that in uh, 2 Corinthians uh, 6, when he tells the guy who didn't know the woman's name probably, paid her money and all this, he said, you became one with her. And then he quotes Genesis 2, the two shall become one flesh. So, so there Paul is underscoring this act means something. It establishes something. Uh, it cannot be ignored. You know, it cannot play like this doesn't happen, even if you didn't, even, even if it was a one-night stand. So I think particularly men need to understand this. And um, I also have done some RUF conferences years ago talking about this. And it was one of those deals where you just explain the beauty and the glory of the act. And then without saying anything about what you're doing wrong, and then you start seeing the deer in the headlight, you know, and, and people coming up wanting to talk about uh, how they've trashed this this gift. But I say, I'm going to just read a few scattered things. Um, so in, uh, in intercourse, the husband takes her into himself. It's interesting that he enters her body, but then he becomes one with her, and then he loves her as he loves himself. So basically, he is receiving her into himself by entering her, which is pretty amazing. So his entering into her, I say, is a fetching action. It's a gathering of all that she is and has into his own being to cherish and value and protect as now a part of himself. And I say that the act is the expression of it. It's the stating of that cherishing, the promising it. And in terms of God's regard for that act, I'm accomplishing that, affecting it and making it happen by taking her into myself through this act. So it just raises the ante. Um, I took in a little bit of, there's a, a few lines here from a, a scholar, but he says, I gather you into myself not to extinguish you. Okay, so I've added not, and nor to be an extension of me or an expression of me, but I take you into myself to make you the center of my concerns, you know, the center of my desires and dreams, to put you before myself and to dislodge all else except God, you know, uh, in favor of you. And I say, I developed this in a different place that Philippians 2 passage of, of uh, count one another is more important than yourself. Uh, I say that the act itself is the way the man says to the woman, I now, from now on, by taking you into myself, I now count you as more important than myself. And what's so interesting is um, 
you you create the new reality of being one flesh with her so as to nourish and cherish her as you do your own body, as Paul teaches, by entering her body. So um, the, the entrance is creating this reality that you then must live out the whole of your life. At that point, you reform your personhood and you reform her personhood. You remake yourself. You expand yourself because you take another into yourself. And one more thing I say, by entering her, you say, I'm now your haven for life. I'm your protector and defender um, to treasure and care for you forever. So it's just trying to let people, men and women, see the glory and beauty of this act. Um, and it, it's, it's shocking how this, as much talk as there is about it, how we still don't have a vision for it. And it, it kind of goes back to what you said before, you were saying before about exploring wonder and awe. Um, I, I, used to, I used to say to my friends who had children before me, I'd look at their child, I'd look at them, and I'd say, isn't it amazing how, how you, you see your child and you, you see some of your wife in your child, you see some of you, and, and then when you hear them laugh, you, I said, and just to think that your bodies became one and you created this new being. And sometimes my friends say, yeah, I guess. <laughs> I, I, was, I was so caught up in it. And they're just like, you know, you know we, we had a baby, I guess, you know. Um, but that was one of the, <laughs> that was one of the really sad things because I didn't know of anybody more fascinated with just, the biology of it and the wonder of, of, you know, creating this new being. And I love what Maggie Gallagher says about that. She says, actually, intercourse is just the parable of oneness. The baby is the reality of the oneness, you know, like a permanent oneness forever is in this child. But that was why when we found out we couldn't have children, it was a, <coughs> it seemed to me a, uh, particularly low blow, you know, like, oh, come on, you know. <laughs> uh, but I don't, I, I'm so grateful for the children we have that God gave us and everything that's flown, flowed from that. But initially that was uh, a pretty bitter pill. But just because I, I, the, I'm just so fascinated with, you know, the whole act and, so anyway, that that's just a little bit of a nutshell of the kind of man. That sounds amazing. So when it, you so you're working on a manuscript right now. You have a, like a public like what are you doing? You've got it to a publisher or something? I haven't gotten it to anybody. I've got um, I, I've I'm I'm getting chapters formed and you know flow of thought and all that kind of stuff. I I I have these. Um, spasms of thought and write paragraphs and then i've got to make sure one spasm goes with another and all of that you know so but anyway it's i love awesome. that you're uh, <laughs> I, I can't help but laugh but uh and i love that you're uh at this stage in your life 
your taxonomical tendencies have led to you writing a book about sex. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. finally got to that category. <laughs> it started with the encyclopedia. Yeah, and right. uh, it's ending with another part of the encyclopedia. <laughs> that's amazing, man. That's that's a great that's a great connection there. Oh, that's beautiful. Man. Well, thanks, Darwin, for joining us today. It's been a, a pretty fascinating conversation uh how could it not be with the three of us and when you really when you get down to it <laughs> we've got uh just one more question to ask you darwin was it a sunrise or a book you read maybe a show you watched on your tv set or tell me what's giving you life yes i could like I didn't wait to hear it again. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Darwin. So uh, what's given you life today? <clears throat> well, I I think um, I'd have to say what's always given me life in a way. But uh, I'm, I, I am looking at a good bit of art. I always enjoy art. I always enjoy reading science. Um, I especially, though, have enjoyed... Uh, the grandkids, our two granddaughters that we basically live with here next door. Oh, there's a, a yard between us uh, or so, but having them pop in and getting to pick them up from school at times and go places. And we've laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed together. And it that's just amazing. And just with the whole Panky family, that's my daughter, uh, daughter's name and, and Bryce and her husband. Uh, that's been really special. So I, I'd say for this last year, that's kind of the major definition. That includes um, pig shows because they show pigs. And wow. uh, Lila has won, I don't know, 20, 25 belt buckles. She's, and Bryson's raising prize pigs. And uh, we have... We probably couldn't tell this. Well, I should be able to tell it on your podcast, but um, I can tell you later about a sermon. We we see when you go to a pig show and it happens on Sunday, you have to uh, you you get to have church on Sunday morning, and uh, so we had this pig breeder who he he really had a good gospel centered uh, message. And we, he, he's, he's actually standing in the ring where they're later going to show the pigs, you know. And so we're all stopped for church. And uh, I won't give the details, but he talks about in graphic detail of how when his pig barn burned down, and he's a prize breeder years ago, and he lost everything, and he uh, really rededicated his life to God. And he talks in detail of how he has dedicated his pig breeding to God and uses a word that if I ever used it, I would have gotten fired that day if I ever used it in the pulpit. But it's just a common breeding word and everybody was fine, you know. So I've loved that aspect about being in Jacksboro, Texas is um, our, we're just living in a great 
piece of the world where, uh, you know, to, to dedicate yourself to God uh, means dedicating things that we city folk can't imagine that you'd even talk right. about. <laughs> you know, you can't even mention those words. And was the word that uh, was the word he mentioned? Work salvation is that? Is <laughs> yeah. that the, was, <laughs> you got it. That was it. <laughs> the, but it also shows the full extent of the gospel to the Gentiles. Like, take, eat, kill, eat. It's like to Peter. I mean, the idea that you were hearing a sermon about the gospel in a pig barn. Is uh, yeah. is, is yeah. would have would have been a real issue in the first century, <laughs> right? <laughs> they would have had a council had to meet about this. There would be a whole series of letters written about this. Like, how do we work yeah. through this? <laughs> they caused no small uprising. Right, we would have split the church. I believe there's sections of First Corinthians written about yes. this conflict, right? Yes. <laughs> I hear some of you are even having sermons in pig styes. <laughs> All right, Darwin. Well, we love you, and uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Darwin. You've meant a lot to to both of us. And you know, when I think of Darwin, I think of uh, wonder, like we said. I think of love. I think of music, and I also think of uh, vegetables. When I think of Darwin. <laughs> So I, I pretty much think of let us love and sing and wonder. Sorry. No, that'll work. We got you. That was terrible. That was terrible. Hey, friends. We're actually going to be taking a break from the podcast for the rest of the summer. If you're enjoying this podcast, would you let us know by way of iTunes rating and review? We would love to hear what people think, how you hate my terrible jokes. Hope everybody has a good summer. Take some time to relax and enjoy some beauty. And we'll be back after that.